Welcome to the Hidden Orchard Podcast. On this podcast, we will explore the deeper concepts and the intersection of Jewish wisdom, the New Testament, and science. We will bring you fascinating insights from the ancient and modern sources, all with the goal of improving and getting the most out of life. Visit our website at thehiddenorchard.com to subscribe to our newsletter and get more information like this. Now, today's episode. The following article was released initially for paid subscribers, but recently I decided to launch into a more in-depth messianic study, sort of reframing the whole concept of Messiah from Jewish tradition. And you can find that if you go to the website, thehiddenorchard.com, and you'll notice that parts one and two have been released, and part three will dive more into the New Testament and how these elements come together in that body of work. So for this, I want to set the groundwork with the concept of Messiah. If you take a step back from the New Testament, you'll notice the texts are surprisingly quiet on major topics that readers have come to take for granted over the years. Entire religions and theologies have been built upon these ideas, yet they're not thoroughly explained amid the pages of the Bible. Whether your canon contains extra books or not, the problem remains. This is especially the case regarding the ubiquitous topic of Messiah. For instance, how do the people know what to look for in a messianic candidate? Or that there is a Messiah at all? Where did they learn about these traditions? And importantly, we should ask, from whom did they learn about the concept of Messiah? Remember, we cannot simply point to the New Testament in this first century time period as it really did not exist yet the way we look at it today. At the time when Paul wrote, all scripture is God-breathed, we must remember this. The scriptures he's referencing are only those found in the Hebrew Bible. So we're left with the reality that the original audiences possessed a significant amount of institutional knowledge. Knowledge not found plainly in the Hebrew Bible. Further, these ideas are really only to be found in the Jewish oral tradition. Though for many Christians, there's a natural apprehension around the idea of engaging with a Jewish or or rabbinic oral tradition. It may feel like a theological step backwards, perceiving Judaism to be in the apostolic rearview mirror, if you will. Others perceive the rabbinic tradition to be out of alignment with their tradition, specifically the tradition of sola scriptura, for example. Sadly, this is true for much of Messianic Judaism as well, likely as it is more often to emerge from Protestant Christianity than from true Jewish origin. The problem is that a reader who lacks access to a coherent primary oral tradition will inevitably resort to filling the gaps with their own. This has been the case through history. The result of this activity can be, and has been, widespread disunity that has resulted in the thousands of denominations we see in the church today. The assumption maintained on this website, The Hidden Orchard Project, is that much of the New Testament relies on a reader's pre-knowledge and familiarity with the Jewish tradition, often referred to as the Mesora. This includes historical information, contemporaneous influences, linguistics, literary styles, cultural events, and most importantly, the Midrashic and the mystical traditions. Now, in the century before the birth of Jesus, Queen Salamne Alexandra invited the Pharisees into her government cabinet. And during her nine-year reign, they were instrumental in helping her make informed decisions and governing the people. 
Through their seat of power, they were able to establish many schools and provide religious education to the people throughout the land of Israel. Jewish kids could sit at the feet of scholars and learn the rich tradition behind the words of Scripture. A young Jesus had such an experience, as the Gospel records in Luke 2.46, when he sat at the feet of the elders. Ironically, the Pharisees, who received no shortage of slander and abuse from modern pulpits, are the very reason we are aware of these concepts today. Even the concept of Messiah relies heavily upon rabbinic, ironically, Pharisaic, interpretive methodology. The same can be said for other household concepts like reward and punishment, heaven and hell, how to organize a religious service, and much more. Even the word Messiah, Mashiach, if you look this up in the Bible, it simply means anointed one. The word is derived from the word Mashiach. How this word became the title for the popular concept of a redeemer is not so simple. Like I said, if you go back into the Hebrew Bible, you do a word search for Mashiach, you'll find the word most commonly appears when someone has been anointed, either as a king or in the sense of being selected for a purpose. Not one of these uses explicitly references the Messiah in the grander eschatological sense. What makes it even more puzzling is that many people are called Messiah in the biblical text. For example, it's David in Psalm 85 and 2 Samuel 22, and it's a Gentile, the Persian king Cyrus, in Isaiah 45. Many of the prophetic passages said to refer to Messiah are equally written to describe a historical person who has come and gone. In the Peshat, in the literal sense, that's all there is to it. But in the higher levels of interpretive methodology, the framework that we talk about on this website called Pardes, this is where the idea of Messiah is derived. And this framework comes to us through the rabbis. So if you venture into the apocryphal books and you see familiar terms, perhaps like the Son of Man, these two are mere mentions that again rely on institutional knowledge. So we must go back and make ourselves familiar with this knowledge. By the first century, there was a remarkable expectation of a redeeming Davidic Messiah. This is evidenced by the increase in messianic movements and existential apocalyptic angst. The sheer number of Jews who followed Jesus did so because he met some unwritten list of criteria up to that point. Even still, in those times, there was a great diversity of thought about the Messiah. For instance, it seems most assumed that Jesus' mission was to overthrow the Roman government, which he repeatedly indicated would not be happening at that time. Where did they learn this idea and get that expectation? The authors of the Gospels and Epistles seem to have been well-versed in the traditions as well. Numerous times, we see references to various Midrashic traditions, Kabbalistic hints, and glimpses of the dual Messiah model. And these are topics we have written about quite often on the website. Much of the teachings of Messianism remained very much concealed, cloaked in mystery, some even to this day. While some components are physical and literal, other aspects are deeply mystical. While Messiah corresponds to a person, it also incorporates all of humanity and a movement that spans throughout time. It's a much broader concept, we'll find. To be an active part of hastening Messiah's arrival can actually be quite demanding. Then, as now, uncovering this tradition is still very much reliant upon the rabbinic process and the very people who first mined it from Scripture. This means that academia and later non-native traditions simply do not hold the ultimate key to understanding this deep concept. 
So therefore, we must incorporate the knowledge that the original audience understood. One should also be discerning to find a qualified teacher to rebuild and reset the foundation. Of course, with new insights come theological implications. We should be open to that. Truth will take us into places that push our comfort zones and our boundaries a little bit. And that's a great thing. We should also broaden our perspective a little bit. We should ask, how would one's afterlife be dependent upon knowledge of traditions that are not so clearly spelled out in the Bible? Does salvation truly hinge on knowing something that has been concealed in an oral tradition? Perhaps we will find that this assumption and others will require re-examination. Nevertheless, today as in ancient times, the reward is great for those who venture in pursuit of truth. And if you go to the show notes and you follow the link back to the website, The Hidden Orchard, uh, you will find I have a link in here for an excellent book that will help explain a lot of this concealed mystery. It's called Mashiach, Who, What, Why, How, Where, and When. And you can click the link on the website and follow that book back if you're interested in learning more. Otherwise, check out the website. We are launching this Messiah series. Part one and two are already out. And part three and four will be coming very soon. Thank you for your time. And that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information like this, again, visit our website, thehiddenorchard.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and look out for other articles posted there throughout the weeks. Reach out to us and let us know what you think of the show. Until next time, have a great week.